All right, grab your Bibles. Luke chapter 7. Everybody needs a Bible. You got to have it in your hands. If you didn't bring one, there should be one under the chair close to you. We are finishing this morning this series on the real F word, forgiveness. Uh, We've been journeying through discovering what God has to say about forgiveness, the gift that it is to us, how we receive forgiveness, how we give forgiveness. And this morning, we're probably uh, going to venture into maybe some of the the hardest, maybe darkest waters of the issue of forgiveness uh, as we begin to explore that place where uh, our heart might be offended with God. And so we're going to do that. I'm going to pray because God knows I need it for this message, but I'm, I'm excited for, I think, what the Lord wants to release for us, and, and then we'll jump in. Okay, let's pray. Father, we know that you're so good. You're so kind and so faithful. And you, in your sovereign power, use everything to draw us to you so that we can be in your family, we can glorify you, and we can experience our maximum joy. So that's what you're releasing this morning. In fact, I'm even praying right now that you would release maximum joy in you because we see your glory and your goodness. And we can worship you in a new level, in a new way because you are trustworthy. So convince us today Convince us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you a question. Have you, have you ever been just like super, super excited to receive a package? Not like, like, yeah, you're ordering toilet paper from Amazon. Not that. Okay. But that's good. I mean, that's good too, especially if you're low on toilet paper. You can be excited about that. So I just want to make that awkward for you guys just to feel that. You guys need to wake up. Um, all right. So I'm with you. I'm with you. All right. Hey, toilet humor is the best of all the humors. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, not just, uh, but, but have you ever been like super excited to like, there's something, maybe somebody sending something to you or something, but you're really excited about sending uh, something that's coming and then you get it or you receive the thing that's coming and then it's either not that great or it's maybe broken, or you just feel like it, it's not, it doesn't work very good, or I don't know if you've ever had that experience before where you're just looking forward to something, and then when you get the thing or you see the thing, it, does, it doesn't work out very well, or, or it's, it, it doesn't meet the expectations that you have, right? Um, that happens, I feel like that happens pretty regularly in life. Um, I was on, we were, my daughter came to me, she's, my, my daughter is a big, my youngest daughter, she's a big fan of Tinkerbell. In fact, I think she wishes she could be Tinkerbell. But she has a Tinkerbell doll that the feet broke off. So Tinkerbell without feet, it just, it's a bad deal. And so she was coming to me like, hey, I really, Father, I really need a fresh and new Tinkerbell with feet. And so we said, okay, so we're just going to start looking at uh, Amazon to see what Amazon had. And I was going on and looking, and I was like, hey, this looks like a great Tinkerbell, and her birthday's coming up in a couple weeks. And so I'm like, hey, I think we can solve this Tinkerbell issue. Uh, But how many of you thank God for Amazon reviews? Hmm? (laughs) 
Because I started looking at the reviews, because this one was not rated very highly, even though it was a beautiful Tinkerbell. Believe me, it was beautiful. And I remember looking, I I was reading through it, and all of a sudden, everyone was saying the same thing. This thing is a ripoff, because it's tiny. Because in the picture, it's beautiful, huge. But apparently everybody got it, and it was like two-inch Tinkerbell. That's not good. That doesn't work, all right? So thank God for Amazon reviews. It staves off that emotion or that feeling of being really, really disappointed when you get your two-inch Tinkerbell, and this is not going to work out for you, right? Everybody has that natural disappointment of hoping for something, but maybe it doesn't come through. Maybe you expect your pizza to taste way better, or you expect your vacation to go way better, and it didn't go that well, or you expect your new phone is going to fix all the problems in your life, or whatever it is. We have these expectations on things going forward, and we have these unmet expectations, and it's one of those base human emotions. But beyond that, every one of us has also experienced those, you know, maybe Amazon disappointments, but there's those life disappointments that happen that that go on a whole nother level. Those places where we had wide-eyed hope for something great, and it and it really didn't work. Or what we found was we actually had lots of hope and excitement and it turned into pain. It didn't go well. Maybe you had a job that you were really excited about and maybe moving through and all of a sudden you lose your job. You didn't expect to lose your job and all of a sudden you're laid off and and it's over. Or you had an expectation that you stood at an altar and thought that the marriage thing was going to be awesome and happy and life-giving and all of a sudden you found yourself in something that was either really difficult or maybe even you had a spouse that was unfaithful. You had big dreams for a child and then they ended up having a sickness or illness that kept them from being able to live in a way that you had hoped that they could or, or in a way that maybe even they desired to. That's a real experience. Or maybe you've been diagnosed with a debilitating disease and you had big dreams for what life was going to be like and all of a sudden you're not able to live out in the thing that you had hoped for. You've got heartbreak over the loss of a loved one that you lost way, way, way too early. We've all had those emotions. It's one thing to have a disappointment from Amazon. It's an entirely different thing when you're looking with wide-eyed hope and you experience real pain, hurt, disappointment. It comes from people. It comes from experiences. It comes in all shapes and forms, but we've all experienced that thing. And the truth is, is that this is common to all of humanity. And it's in these circumstances, what happens is is we end up with a lot of questions. And the biggest questions we tend to ask are this. Hey, God, where were you? Why did you let this happen to me? If you're good then why am I going through this moment in my life? Those questions begin to swirl around in our mind, trying to grope for an understanding of why, if God is good, we're walking through pain. It's a very real question. I don't think it's one that the church often 
likes to speak to because it has so many layers and it feels so complicated and it honestly feels even a little touchy, but I don't know that I can think of anything more relevant to a broken world that's wondering when they look around and see pain and suffering, how can God be good and we see all of the things and experience even personally all of the things that we experience. And if we're not careful what we find in asking those questions, which are okay to ask, in fact, actually, actually really valid to ask the question, but in asking that, what we find is our heart going to a place of offense. God, I'm offended. I was hurt or wounded. It seems like you weren't with me. It seems like you were far away and I needed you and I didn't see you. And so we begin to ask those questions. So I want to just take a moment to begin to dive in and ask that because it's entirely possible you are in this room this morning and one of, one of a few things is true about you. One, you find yourself right now in a moment where it feels like God has left you and he's a million miles away and he has not treated you with goodness. You feel that very present in this moment. Or it's possible that you were hurt really badly from a previous experience, something that's happened in your past, and it has affected how you see God and how you relate to him. It, I'll say this, it's entirely possible that something has happened and you're offended with God and you don't even know you're offended with him. But your ability to relate and connect with God on any real and relational level is skewed and marred because of the past experience. And there really is, um, the best way I know how to put it is a very deep-seated lack of trust in who God is. And we know we don't, we're not even aware that it's taken place. Or it's possible you're in this room right now and you're trying to walk with someone who's really questioning God. Maybe the Lord's bolstered your faith in this moment, but you're walking with some people that are struggling to know and to believe in the goodness of God. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to begin to answer the question, what do we do if we find ourselves offended with God? What do we do and how do we navigate when we see things that happen and we find ourselves disappointed or hurt and feeling like God has not been faithful to us. And so what I wanna do is just, I wanna hold up the truth. We're gonna do a lot of scripture. And we're gonna hold up the truth and, and by the grace of God, we're gonna ask God to kill the lie because there's both the truth and a lie going on when we come to a place where we don't believe we can trust God in his goodness. And so that's what we're gonna do. So here's what we're gonna do. We'll go on this journey. And I know that in this place, he's gonna show us his goodness, his heart. Um, and we're gonna see real people, real pains, challenges that were faced in the scripture and what God has to say. So in Luke 7, you're in your Bible there. I'm gonna set this moment up and we're gonna read this scripture uh, together. Let me set it up. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, came and was the one, the prophesied Elijah, or the voice that was going to prepare the way for the Messiah of the Jewish people and then utterly for the world to come. 
and to, and to ransom the world to himself. That's what the Messiah was going to do. But there was going to be a herald that would come before and prepare the way. John the Baptist was that man. He also happened to be the cousin of Jesus. And he comes and he proclaims a message of repentance. And he calls people to make their heart right because if they don't, they'll miss the Messiah. They won't rightly see Jesus for who he was. So he's saying, get your heart ready to receive the coming king. And so he goes and he proclaims and he's faithful to that word and he begins to uh, prepare the way and he comes through and then when it's time for Jesus to, to step into his ministry, John the Baptist is the one baptizing. He's in the Jordan River and Jesus comes to him and, and Jesus says, hey, you gotta baptize me. He's like, I shouldn't be baptizing you. He's like, no, this is right for you to do this. They have this connection. So John baptizes, well, he's known as John the Baptist, he baptizes Jesus in the first prophetic picture of Jesus going into the grave, into the water, and coming out alive. It's a powerful picture. This is all happening with John the Baptist. And so Jesus is now released into his ministry. He begins his ministry. The voice comes down literally out of heaven. And the father said, this is my son, Jesus, in who I take pleasure and delight. He's my boy. And it's proclaimed. Jesus goes on his ministry. John continues to preach repentance and calling. But the problem is, is he steps on some toes and he steps on the king's toes. Because the king has, uh, if you know, uh, it, what, what you see from scripture is the king has stolen the wife of his brother for himself. And the king wants to be uh, exonerated from it. And John the Baptist says, no. Stealing wives isn't okay. And he upholds righteousness. He uphold, and he calls sin, sin. And Herod uh, is angry. And actually, Herod's new wife is angry. And they ask for him. So he's imprisoned. He's put into prison. And he's there. And now he's got a death sentence over his life. That's the moment that we're at in Luke chapter 7. Look at verse 18. The disciples of John came, so, so they, uh, they're coming, and they're reporting all these things to John, right? They're tell, essentially, what they're doing is the disciples of John are telling John that Jesus is moving in supernatural ways, and God is coming. The Son of God has come. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now for clarity, John is also believing that when the Messiah comes, he's going to set up his kingdom, the, the eternal kingdom, the eternal throne that's going to reign in Israel. And he doesn't fully understand that the reign that Jesus or the Messiah is going to bring is a, is a heavenly realm and not just on the earth. So he's going, hey, I'm in jail, been in prison. I, I've done what you've asked me to do. I went, I've been operating in a way that was honoring to you. I've done the role that I'm supposed to do. I'm in jail. It would be great if you could go ahead and establish your kingdom so I could bust out of here. So are you the one? 
Is this, or are we still looking for someone else to come and go ahead and get this kingdom established? Because the king I'm under right now is out for me. Verse 21, Jesus does something unique. He takes those disciples and he says, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So he takes John's disciples and he says, I want to show you exactly who I am. He does ministry and then he answers them. I want you to go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And then verse 23, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So what Jesus does is he looks at the John's disciples and says, listen, I want you to go back and report to John everything that Isaiah prophesied, the mo- some of the most famous prophecies about what the Messiah would be. I'm walking in it. And he quotes Isaiah, what we know from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, where Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So what Jesus is doing is he's authenticating who he is and he's quoting Isaiah, but right there in that scripture, right there in the promise of what the Messiah is going to do, what does it say? And that last, and the, and the last part says, I'm going to proclaim in Isaiah 61 to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Do you hear it? I'm going to open the prison for those who are bound. And there's a promise of what the Messiah is going to do. The issue is Are we willing for the Messiah to open the gates and to do his work in ways that are beyond anything that we could fathom? Because the gates were going to be swung wide open for John the Baptist, but not the physical gates. Essentially, what what he's saying in verse 23 as he says, I want you to tell John this, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Meaning this, John, I love you. I love your life and all that you are and all that you'll do. But you need to understand something. Your life's gonna be taken from you. Now, this isn't super popular to to preach on, to be honest with you. But there is a reality that comes when we follow Jesus that oftentimes we're sold a, a bill of goods to say, come to Jesus and everything in this life will be fixed. And there is some deep, deep truth that God is going to fix everything, but not in the way that we think and not in the way that we always understand. And he looks at and he speaks, if you will, to John to say, hey, 
I am the, I'm the king, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ransom you, but it won't be here in this physical way. John, you're going to, and if you read the biblical account, you're going to lose your head. Beheaded. And so I want to make a proclamation to my people, all that are willing to follow me. I want you to hear this church together. Blessed, full, happy, joyful are those who are able to walk through this life trusting God in such a way where we don't live offended when God doesn't do things the way that we think he ought to do them. It is a deep, deep, deep call to true trust in a good God, even if he doesn't work out every circumstance the way we'd like for him to. And this is the beckoning and the call that we begin to hear. This is what we begin to see, that God is always gonna fulfill his promises to us, always going to come through for us on our behalf. But we don't get the guarantee that he'll do it in the way that we think he ought or he might or he should. That's God's message to John. It's his message to us, to any one of us that have been tempted in that moment to be offended with God or maybe angry with him because you didn't understand why you were going through what you were going through. God has this way of coming and saying, I have the rich and deepest blessings for you when you say, I trust you no matter what, no matter what. Your way is the best way. Even if it doesn't seem like it's working out the best for me in this moment. And we have this huge battle beginning to take place. Massive altercation that is coming between the voice of the Lord saying, trust me and know in my goodness. And the voice of the enemy accusing the heart of God to us. I've been victim to it in every one of us. In fact, what we see is in Revelation 12, the scripture actually says that Satan, who is the accuser, accuses God day and night. There is no relenting to the voice of the enemy, no relenting. And that voice is seeking constantly to accuse the heart of God and to accuse you, meaning he comes constantly with a whisper. You're going through this point of pain and he'll come into that pain and he'll come into that moment where it doesn't seem like the Lord's there. It doesn't seem like God is trustworthy because you're going through a really hard and painful moment. And what he'll say is this, God doesn't really love you. I mean, if he did, you surely would not be going through this. I don't know that he actually really cares for you. I mean, if he cared for you, you wouldn't find yourself in this situation or circumstance. There's no way God could actually be good and you walk through this moment. You ever heard that whisper? Or, so he'll accuse the heart of God and speak with just vile things. Or he'll, what he'll do is he'll look at you and he'll say this, who are you to think you deserve God's goodness? I mean, what have you ever done to really merit God coming through for you? You certainly haven't been very faithful to him. 
Why do you think that you deserve his goodness in your life? I tell you, the lie is prevalent and it's crafty. It catches us in moments of hardship and it seeks to destroy our relationship with God and what he wants to do and accomplish in and through our pain. And so part of the real journey of actual real faith is believing that though this life actually has real pain, that we have a real God who is really good and wants to show us his love in the midst of our pain. That's what John the Baptist was wrestling with in that moment. That's what his disciples were wrestling with. God, are you gonna come through in this moment? He says, oh, I'm gonna come through. But trust me, it's gonna be in a way that you can't imagine. And what I love, of course, a few verses later is where Jesus says, let me tell you, hey, let me tell you about John the Baptist. Here's what he says. Of all the creatures in all the universe born of a woman, there's none greater than John. <laughs> that's the kind of stuff I want to hear in my life. Those are the, that's the voice. That's the voice of the Father. The enemy says, how dare you? think that you deserve goodness in this moment of pain. And Jesus says, you're walking through pain, but let me tell you, you're my son. You're my co-heir. You're walking with me into glory. That's my promise. It might be ugly right now. It's going to be beautiful beyond your comprehension. Trust me. These are the two voices, voice of the enemy, voice of the king. And they're both beckoning us to follow that voice. And the encouragement in our moment of pain, which we'll all have, is what voice will we follow? What voice will we listen to? So what does the word have to say to us? Here, that's the question. What does the word actually have to say to us when we walk through pain and we feel the true edge of disappointment because life isn't working out the way we would like for it to. There's a couple of things that I just wanted to highlight and then we're just gonna finish the morning taking an opportunity to respond to Jesus. A, couple, a few things. One, we, we know we will have trouble in this life. And I think it's important to point this out because Jesus' own words in John chapter 16, his own words are says, listen, in this world, you will have tribulation. This, this will happen. But he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Part of the beginning of trusting in Jesus is to be able to see that from the get-go, there was never a promise in following Jesus that we would never experience pain. The promise was is that whatever you have to walk through, I promise you this, I have overcome I'll be the one that is trustworthy when nothing else is trustworthy. I've overcome. And there's an exchange that we're implored to make, and that's this. Either I have to have the victory or I give that to Jesus and he gets to have the victory for me. 
And so we can often get consumed by trying to have and to take and to own our own victories in this life, trying to manage and fix and control and manipulate and work to try to make for our own good. And what Jesus wants to say is, listen, as you go through this life, understand you'll have trouble, but I have overcome. And we get to make this exchange, not my victory, God, your victory. And I receive it and it's for me. And no one can steal that from me. No one. Nobody can steal the victory of Jesus over our lives. Jesus wants us to know that while we're in that fire and we're not overcoming, he's the one that comes in to rescue. And he says, daughter, son, don't worry. I've overcome for you. In this fire, I'm overcoming for you. Secondly, God is always good, trustworthy, and in control. Always, always, always. Scripture is absolutely chock full. I couldn't, uh, in fact, this is probably, there's probably like seven sermons in here. I'm just packing it into one. That's how good of a preacher I am. Um, <laughs> just kidding. But there's, there's so, this, this, tr- this, act- this truth right here is so dense we couldn't cons- you, you could consume it until the end of the age and not be able to get all the fullness of it. Scripture's full with the incredible, sovereign, good control of the king. Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for, but it's Jesus' own words, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, meaning this, Jesus The Father is intertwined with the tiniest thing on the planet. A little sparrow that no one ever knows or sees. God's in charge of all of it. It isn't a leaf that falls to the ground in Tennessee that God doesn't will it. He's in control of all things. Even as I say that, I know that will grade on our sense of rationality. Because there's such a prevalent, in Western Christianity, there's such a prevalent thought that God made the world, and then he sat back and he said, we'll let science take over. Listen, I thank God for science. It's brilliant. It's awesome. The study of everything that God made, it's powerful. But listen and understand, God's in control of it all. Every last moment, every last piece, there's not a flake of grass that withers apart from the divine counsel of God. Matthew 8, even the wind and the seas obey God. The water goes exactly where he tells it to. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Let me tell you, in the evil kings and in the glorious kings in all of human history, God's accomplishing his purposes. Always, forever. Isaiah 46, I am God And there is none like me saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. No one person, no one thing, no one circumstance can ruin, change, manipulate the plan of God. He accomplishes his purposes. But hear this, it's not just control, it's goodness. It's goodness. 1 John 1, 5 This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
None. Totally clean, pure. Psalm 25, good and upright is the Lord. Isaiah 6, the angels cry before God day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is who he is. He is so good and so right. He is moving and shaping according to the counsel of his will, accomplishing good in all places for all times. And so the question then that arises is, if that's the case, if God's always accomplishing his will and his purposes, then why do I suffer? Why do bad things happen? And the answer, humanity's been asking for thousands of years. The answer is, while we can't always know or understand all of God's purposes in our pain, God shows us himself, his truths in the word that we can hang on to. And I'm going to give just a few of them to, uh, to you for us to chew on, and then we're going to finish with worship. Number one, uh, pain in this life is the grace of God to point out the disease of sin. This is just a promise from the scripture. I won't take long. Romans 8, 18 through 21. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I want you to hear this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Hey, how cool is that? Creations. Look, I mean, it, the angels are there. Like they're going, oh, God, can't wait till God wraps this story up. They're, they're, they bent over saying holy because they cannot imagine. In fact, they can't get their heads around the brilliant counsel of God to come and take this nasty, messy, sinful, broken, evil people, clean them, make them whole, give them himself, and then bring them into his family. They're going, I can't believe, I can't wait to see this. You who have lost loved ones, man, those that knew Jesus and had that relationship, you're thinking they're going into the presence of Jesus and the angels are going, oh my gosh, I knew that's what they were like. The whole way, look what God did. Look what God is doing. Look what he's accomplishing. They're groaning. Creation's eager to see it, but look at this. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Meaning this is God's work. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, God subjected creation to futility, to this feel this experience of decay and bondage and misery on purpose so that the physical pain we experience in this life would announce, would trumpet 
to us that something is dreadfully wrong on the inside. Pain and suffering are the declaration, the, it's the kind declaration of God for us to see that we're not right. It's, if you will, pain and suffering is a parable of what's actually happening, the, the grossness of sin that has torn us up. They're pictures. The, the, the suffering we experience in the physical realm is a picture of what sin is like in the spiritual realm. I love C.S. Lewis. It's one of his famous quotes. He says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And can I just be honest with you? Whatever pain or disappointment or hurt I've ever experienced in this life, I feel deeply, deeply thankful to the Lord for pointing out to me my own brokenness, for telling me and showing me my sin. Maybe the best way to put it is how loving and merciful is it in the pain that we experience for God to help show our need for him. The greatest disease in all of mankind is to think that we do not need him. Cancer is nothing. Disease is nothing. Infirmity is nothing. In light of the disease of sin, how pure and good is God to show us sin? To bring us to an understanding so that we can walk with him. Secondly, God graciously uses our pain to redirect our hearts from putting our hope in the pleasure of this world and to place our hope fully in him. That's what God is doing. He's graciously drawing us to that place where we stop treasuring all of the comforts of this world and we start treasuring him as our greatest pleasure. Paul, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, I count everything, everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What Paul is saying is, I, there is nothing on this earth that is a greater treasure than knowing Jesus, being with him. Ch church, hear this. This is the kind of relationship God desires with every one of us where every one of us look at him, we can look at everything else in this life and say, no, I, wanna, I treasure you more than anything else. And God will often use pain to pull our hands off of the stuff that we often sink our hands into in this life to say, no, there is a greater treasure to behold, to hold on to. Habakkuk he says it in the most 
poetic way you could probably say this. Habakkuk 3, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the, yield, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It's not a cute concept out there. There's something really to be held in our relationship with God. It's something that he wants for every one of us to taste and know that he is the answer to the cry of our heart. And so we'll experience moments of pain to help push us nearer to knowing that he is our supreme treasure, to pull our fingers off the pleasures of this world. Finally, God is shaping us. Uh, in pain, God is shaping us into something powerful and unshakable. I want, I want you to hear that. God is, in, in those moments of pain, God is making us powerful and unshakable. James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you, meet various, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect and that you may be, be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Listen, God is producing in you and I something powerful that's not shaken. The point of everything that we walk through in this life is to bolster and make us ready and right, to be ministers of the reconciliation, to be able to proclaim to the world, though I go through the mountaintops and I go through the valleys, God is my rock, and he can be that for you too. This is what he's doing. He's producing a steadfastness in us. Finally, uh, in our pain, God is always, always, always working for our good. Band, you guys can come up. We're gonna finish out. God's always working for our good. Romans 8, 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is, is to be revealed to us. God's promise in Romans 8, 10 verses later in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things all things. God's working for our good. Do we believe it? Do we trust him? When we walk through the moment of pain, can we hold fast and hold on to him, believing he's producing and working for our good, even if it feels like it's the opposite direction in that moment? Do we trust him? Do we believe that something is coming right? I love what Joseph had to say in Genesis chapter 50, 20. He's been betrayed by his brothers, thrown into prison, was uh, made a high place and thrown back into prison. I mean, it's just totally mistreated, totally mishandled. It doesn't look like there's anything going right in his life. Yet God raises him up and sets him over all of Egypt. Jacob has, uh, I'm sorry, not Jacob, Joseph has, Joseph has one thing to say in verse 20, Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Church, hear this? God isn't afraid of evil. He uses everything, even the evil things for our good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. The purpose of ch changing and saving people. I'm, 
we'll finish with this. I'm, and I won't go into it. In fact, I'll let my wife share sometime maybe here. Our, I talked about Elizabeth and Tinkerbell. She's so precious to us. When she was, when my wife was pregnant with Elizabeth, uh, we, we discovered in our first doctor visit that it wasn't just Elizabeth, there were twins. And for two seconds, we were so excited until the doctor had to turn and tell us that one of our twins didn't make it. And I'll let my bride share some other time about the depth of all that we went through. It's probably one of those moments that's ingrained in your mind. I remember literally holding my wife in that hospital room. And you go through these moments of pain and you don't really know in the moment what's happening or why it's happening. But can I tell you, let me tell you something. Here's what I wanna say about this. I'll tell you what I'm excited to see. There's going to come a day where I will see my wife see that baby, girl or boy. I'm gonna see her face light up. I'm gonna see that baby's face light up. And I'm gonna see Elizabeth probably floating like a fairy, lit up. We have the promise of God's goodness. There are so many reasons why we think it might've been better for us to have had that sweet child in this life. But let me tell you, God has greater promises. So we believe in his goodness. Church, will you believe in his goodness with me through all of it? Will you believe and hold on, hold fast to that truth when you're going through the fire? God is good. Stand with me. We're gonna pray. We're gonna just sing here. We might go a little over. I just want you to dial your heart in. Be here with us and present in this moment. God, as we come before you to proclaim your majesty and your goodness as we sing these songs, I pray you would stir in us a belief and a trust in you that goes far beyond any trust we've ever had. I pray we'd not leave this room without trusting you in deeper and greater and more powerful ways. I pray you would begin to shape us in new ways and shape our faith and trust in you so that, God, you are glorified and magnified forever and we experience our greatest and deepest joy. And for those that are in this moment of pain, Lord, even as we sing, I pray you would meet people in their pain. I pray you would come and speak and shepherd and put your hand and your heart on every person that's going through that moment, even right now, and say, child, I love you and I'm for you. Stay with me, I'm working for your good. Lord, I ask that you would anchor this truth in us as we sing. In the mighty name of Jesus.